Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in the first two seasons of the podcast, we covered an enormous range of topics ranging from cryptos to culture, personal accountability, data governance, and the involving impact of financial crime. From a cold start, I have to say quite literally, in January 2021, I'm incredibly pleased to be able to say that we now have more than 8,500 subscribers. So thank you very much for listening. Now, in this first episode of Series 3, we're looking at the complex and ever-changing landscape for sanctions. And I'm delighted to be able to say that I'm joined by Helen Chan and Brett Wolfe to take a global look at the compliance issues. Hi, Susanna. Good to be back. Yes, good morning, everyone. Glad to join you. A robust sanctions compliance programme is a core competency for all financial services firms. And a comprehensive risk-based approach to sanctions monitoring has always been part of a financial services firm's obligations with regard to the combating of financial crime. Now, that said, sanction screening, sanctions compliance and evidence in compliance with the absolute patchwork quilt of under and overlapping requirements has never been easy. And it's got a whole lot more challenging in the wake of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan for one emerging use of sanctions against a crypto exchange deemed to be a conduit for illicit funds as a second. And now we also have the challenges with the implications of the Chinese counter foreign sanctions law. And where does that leave international firms in terms of compliance? So without further ado, Brett, starting on the issue of Afghanistan, where are we now? Well, sure. Uh, By way of background, uh, as you mentioned, on August 15th, uh, when the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban uh, very quickly uh, took control of the country. And um, that that is problematic to an extent because the Taliban, um, along with the Haqqani Network, which provides uh, security for the Taliban, Um, have long been subject to a range of sanctions uh, by the United Nations Security Council, um, as well as the United States and uh, other competent authorities. A number of the uh, Taliban leaders, uh, including members of the Haqqani Network, uh, have been named to senior cabinet positions uh, within the Afghan government. Um, And as a result, Um, There's substantial risk for financial institutions uh, that continue to facilitate transactions involving the government of Afghanistan uh, due to the perception that given the Taliban runs the country, uh, the government of Afghanistan is now essentially off limits um, as a terrorist organization. There had been a lot of silence on this since August 15th. Um, and there was a lot of pressure on the U.S. Treasury Department, for one, uh, to offer some kind of explanation or guidance as to how financial institutions should be managing this um, spike in sanctions risk uh, if they should choose to continue facilitating transactions involving uh, entities in Afghanistan. 
And some questions uh, were answered last Friday uh, when Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control issued two general licenses uh, that are aimed at um, giving comfort uh, to financial institutions and uh, clarifying uh, that humanitarian transactions um, can continue uh, without pause uh, despite any concerns about the uh, the Taliban control of the Afghan government. Um, these general licenses uh, aim to solve uh, a challenging policy problem encountered by humanitarian humanitarian organizations, NGOs, um, financial institutions, uh, and other parties. Because unlike other U.S. sanctions programs, uh, counterterrorism sanctions, uh, such as those targeting the Taliban and the Haqqani network, uh, don't contain broad humanitarian exemptions. Um, as a result, uh, the humanitarian community and financial institutions could be violating U.S. sanctions by sending medicine, med medical supplies, uh, and other uh, humanitarian goods. Um, while these licenses from OFAC were helpful, uh, they still failed to answer the pressing question of whether Washington uh, generally considers the government of Afghanistan um, at this point to be a blocked person. Um, so uh, that is guidance that uh, financial institutions will be eagerly awaiting. Um, OFAC also has not addressed the issue of remittances in these licenses. Um, interestingly, both MoneyGram and Western Union had halted cash transfer services to Afghanistan uh, in the wake of the Taliban takeover. Um, but in early September, both companies resumed transfers uh, with the understanding that they essentially had permission from the US Treasury Department. And uh, my sources have been saying that OFAC's goal is to ensure that remittances continue and to ensure that humanitarian aid uh, continues to flow into the, the, into the war-torn country. Um, but um, there are nonetheless uh, a number of answers that, that need to be forthcoming. Um, at this point, interestingly, financial institutions that continue to do business in Afghanistan um, it's not sort of the traditional weighting of risk versus reward. Um, banks aren't going to be making profits, substantial profits by doing this business in Afghanistan. Um, it's more of an issue of good global citizenship. Um, so I, I know at least one bank that had continued Afghanistan transactions uh, despite these risks after the Taliban takeover. Um, and they were quite relieved uh, when they uh, saw these general licenses. So th there has been a positive impact, uh, but there are many questions that remain to be answered. Um, all eyes remain on the UN Security Council to, uh, to see what approach it will take in terms of recognizing, either recognizing uh, in some sense that the Taliban government as an entity that can be uh, transacted with or clarifying that it is, in fact, completely off limits.
and uh, we're awaiting uh, that same information from the U.S. government. Um, and one other thing I might note is that the FAQ that accompanied uh, these U.S. Treasury licenses noted that they apply to both U.S. financial institutions and foreign financial institutions. Um, and this is significant because uh, U.S. Treasury sanctions around terrorism are what are known as secondary sanctions, uh, which means that uh, the extraterritorial long arm of the U.S. government will reach out potentially and um, take action against foreign financial institutions that are doing business with prohibited parties. Um, but in this case, uh, OFEC has made clear that in terms of providing this humanitarian aid, uh, these general licenses um, apply to foreign institutions as well. So it's sort of a provided some broad global comfort um, in allowing these uh, very necessary transactions to take place. So that's where we stand right now. Wow, that, that's quite a shift in, in circumstances since August 15th. One very quick question before I, I ask Helen about China. Um, do we have a sense of time scale as to when we might get further clarity from either OFAC, UN Security Council, from wherever? Is, is there a time scale somewhere? Yeah, unfortunately, that, that there is no time scale um, that has been uh, publicly announced or even looking into the crystal bar, ball. It's, it's very difficult to imagine. Um, there are so many um, complexities at play here um, in terms of uh, global security and terrorism. Um, you know, there were still foreign nationals looking to get out of Afghanistan and it's highly unlikely that in the short term, um, foreign governments are going to do anything um, uh, that might provoke the Taliban uh, and lead to retribution um, against foreign citizens. Um, so I, I think for security reasons uh, in the short term, we're probably not going to see uh, any more than we've seen here. But um, we can always be hopeful uh, but I, I don't think institutions should expect anything in the very near future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so, Helen, China, I mean, China often seen as the counterweight and counterpoint to the US and its approach to things. So where's China with all of this in Afghanistan? So, Susanna, there has been some chatter about prospective investment ties between the Taliban and potentially the Chinese government or Chinese businesses but we're unlikely to see any kind of flood of investment materialize for several reasons. Uh, first of all, the general sort of lack of infrastructure, especially for financial and technology networks in Afghanistan, make it relatively unattractive, especially for new economy businesses in China to invest there. Also, U.S. sanctions are a bigger concern. As Brett mentioned, the extraterritorial long arm of the DOJ is always a concern. Uh, both the DOJ and the Treasury Department have been fairly active in enforcing U.S. sanctions compliance at Chinese banks. The Bank of Communications, China Merchant Bank, and uh, Shanghai Pudong Development Bank are just some of the banks that are currently involved in litigation and enforcement action over allegations that they violated U.S. sanction laws. So these ongoing legal proceedings against these banks have implications both for the banks and also for counterparties dealing with them and 
you know, it's not good for business. I think recently OFAC also fined um, the UK arm of the Bank of China over compliance deficiencies related to the Sudan Sanctions Program. So it's worth noting that in this enforcement action, the Bank of China actually self-reported the violations. And this suggests that there is an awareness of the need to mitigate US sanctions risk at the very least. So overall, the perception that there is a risk that Chinese businesses could run afoul of US sanctions laws will discourage most multinationals from China from investing heavily in Afghanistan or at all. Yeah, I, I, you, you just end up feeling increasingly sorry for Afghanistan and the Afghanis. Let's let's be completely frank. Um, I also mentioned in my introduction about sanctions enforcement against a crypto exchange. Now, that's, I think, noteworthy in and of itself. It was the first of its kind. But the OFAC advisory then expanded on ransomware payments associated with all of this. So, Brett, what has the OFAC said? What has OFAC said? And why was the enforcement against the crypto exchange particularly interesting? Sure. Uh, well, it's probably best uh, to start out um, mentioning that in October of last year, uh, OFAC issued an advisory highlighting the sanctions risk associated with ransomware payments. Uh, and at that time, it said that companies facilitating these uh, payments to hackers on behalf of victims, uh, including financial institutions, cyber insurance firms, and companies uh, involved in digital forensics and uh, incident response, uh, not only encourage future ransomware dem payment demands, uh, but may also violate OFAC regulations. And on September 21st, uh, when OFAC blacklisted this cryptocurrency exchange uh, for allegedly enabling illegal payments uh, from ransomware attacks, um, it also issued updated uh, guidance uh, addressing this issue of financial institutions and their, their involvement um, in the facilitation of, of ransomware payments. Um, interestingly, this updated guidance, where it departed from the previous guidance, was it included um, some steps that financial institutions can take to mitigate uh, sanctions risks that are associated with these ransomware payments. Um, Ransomware gangs uh, this year have hit numerous uh, important U.S. companies uh, in large-scale attacks, uh, including the Colonial Pipeline attack uh, that temporarily led to fuel shortages on the U.S. East Coast. Um, and hackers have also targeted an Iowa-based agricultural firm, uh, sparking fears of disruptions to, to grain harvesting in the Midwest. Um, in total, in 2020, uh, ransomware payments reached over $400 million, uh, which was more than four times the level in 2019. Uh, and the threat has grown so prominent uh, that U.S. President Biden uh, reportedly told Russian President Vladimir Putin during a July meeting that critical infrastructure companies should be off limits to ransomware gangs um, because such groups often operate from Russia or Ukraine um, according to cybersecurity experts and, and federal prosecutors. Um, so th this is a very high priority uh, for the Biden administration. And this 
bit of guidance, uh, this advisory uh, that was issued on September 21st, um, really sort of laid out a couple of proactive steps anyway uh, that financial institutions can take to to mitigate uh, risks around uh, ransomware payments. And uh, namely, uh, what they can do is have in place uh, good cyber hygiene, I suppose you might put it, um, in terms of uh, multi-factor authentication for their systems, um, steps along those lines to ensure that uh, they are not uh, overly vulnerable to these kind of ransomware attacks, uh, wherein their systems are seized by malware and they have to make these payments uh, in order to regain access. Uh, you know, what OFAC is saying basically is uh, ensure that your systems aren't seized in the first place. And if you do that, and if you report incidents to the Treasury Department and to federal law enforcement authorities, um, when these kind of things happen, despite your security precautions, uh, that these are going to be strong mitigating factors that may prevent OFAC at the very least from taking any kind of embarrassing public enforcement action against you um, might just result instead in, in some kind of quiet agreement uh, b between OFAC uh, and the, the, the firm. Uh, but let's be clear, OFAC does not like uh, anyone to make payments to these ransomware attackers. That has not changed. Um, but it seems like uh, perhaps OFAC wants to foster more of a partnership uh, with the private sector and be a, a bit less combative um, in terms of laying out dictates uh, without offering any explanation of, of what firms can do to, to avoid these kind of negative consequences. Uh, so there has been some progress made there. Um, but yes, uh, the blacklisting of uh, this cryptocurrency exchange um, was a big first step uh, because this hadn't happened before. And I think it might be viewed as a warning shot to other financial institutions. Um, granted, this was you know, a, an entity based in the Czech Republic um, in terms of its... Um, you know, sort of financial significance to the global financial system, probably very limited. Um, but um, it obviously was operating in a very dark place. And uh, the U.S. government wanted to make clear that, you know, even a financial institution of some sort um, could be um, entirely blacklisted by the U.S. government um, if it was ignoring uh, the requests of OFAC. So, uh, it was a little bit of OFAC muscle flexing, and uh, it would seem that perhaps the uh, the message has been received. Um, I also wanted to mention that earlier this week uh, at an anti-money laundering conference, uh, there was a speaker from the National Security Council, and her advice to financial institutions uh, verbally during this address was to um, suggest that they should, quote-unquote, uh, defend yourselves against uh, cyber attacks and ransomware attacks. 
Um, and she also made clear that from the view of the Biden administration, uh, ransomware, quote unquote, is a money laundering issue. So she was very clearly laying out uh, that this issue is on the plates of financial institutions, AML compliance departments. Um, this is something that they need to address. And when these kind of attacks take place, uh, suspicious activity reports uh, need to be filed with the U.S. Treasury Department, um, including all of the detailed information uh, that the institution holds uh, if they want to have this sort of uh, degree of protection that is laid out in the advisory. So there's been a lot of information on this front recently, and it is certainly an area that uh, financial institutions uh, need to uh, need to keep up with. I think need to keep up with and need to take very seriously, to be frank, as well. Um, Absolutely. Uh, it, picking up on the sort of the def the defensive point, Helen, there's been much focus from for, for financial services firms having you know you've got to have the right policies and procedures in place. You've got to understand what you're doing with sanctions compliance. However, you then get to the, perhaps the slight disconnect. So, what should financial services firms do in practice when they deal with everybody else who's not quite subject to the same requirements and may not have? equivalent sanctions, compliance, prevention of money laundering, whatever it is, programs in place. What does good begin to look like there now? So you're right in that sanctions violations by businesses outside of the financial sector haven't been as widely reported as fines that are levied typically against banks. But um, third-party service provider risk is increasingly relevant for sanctions compliance and in enforcement actions especially compliance deficiencies that lead to sanctions violations by businesses, especially technology service providers. This is one area that is starting to attract a lot of regulatory scrutiny. Over the past few years, OFAC has brought enforcement actions against several non-financial companies, including Apple and Amazon. In the case of Apple, the company's screening software actually failed to match upper and lowercase letters that appeared on Apple's system and the SDN list, and this actually led to Apple violating sanctions. Um, in the enforcement action, OFAC emphasized that companies should ensure that their software is not only robust, but it's practical and can be used practically, and that their staff are properly trained on the functionality of any software that they do use. There are a few other recommended practices for third-party risk management. Um, businesses should be thinking about conducting very rigorous third-party onboarding processes. The due diligence that they conduct should include things like questionnaires and even interviews. Companies should also be looking at reviews of any past misconduct that the third party may have been involved in, and also looking at the ultimate beneficial owners of third party service providers. Separately, companies should think about identifying the intended uses of the goods and services by the third party service provider or third party suppliers. Um, they should be considering whether the third party might be providing services or actually transferring goods to sanctioned entities because that will also expose them to liability as well. Now, where appropriate, 
Companies could also consider obtaining written assurances of compliance uh, with sanctions laws from third parties that they consider to be crucial or provide core services. This can form a, a part of the company's own evidence of compliance and is good practice. It's a practice that banks certainly use when they deal with clients, um, but businesses should also increasingly think about using it for third-party service providers as well. Very useful stuff indeed. Thank you, Helen. Um, I'm just going to move on to the sort of more practical granular detail on takeaways for compliance officers. And, and I'll actually kick it off because earlier in, in September, the Central Bank of United Arab Emirates put out guidance on transaction monitoring and sanction screening. Now, it is a very good codification of what good in terms of evolving compliance practices looks like. Yes, it's specifically for um, transaction monitoring and sanction screening in the UAE, but the protocols inherent in that are relevant to absolutely everybody. And the hallmarks of an effective sanction screening program there are seen to include a well-calibrated risk framework. And that's, I know, easier said than done, but you calibrate it and keep recalibrating and make sure you understand, if you are the head of compliance, how it is calibrated. Robust training and risk awareness, we've mentioned that already. And a meaningful integration of the sanction screening program into your wider approach to sanctions and financial crime. It can't, sanction screening can't be this little island all by itself, possibly sat in a dark corner. It has to be an integral part of your approach and your obligations in the combating of financial crime. And then for me, the most important element of all is active oversight. And that's active oversight from the firm's board and senior managers. And they need to understand and be involved in and understand what could compromise a firm's ability to undertake sanction screening. And that could be inappropriate calibration, process inefficiencies, staff issues, systems failures, whatever. The board needs to be made aware and they need to promptly and adequately remediate any of those issues. Now, the other thing the board and senior managers need to do is communicate very clear risk appetites within their firms and basically set the strong tone from the top to say that compliance and evidenced compliance with financial sanctions is a priority and actually we're going to take it very seriously and do it very well. I would I will include a link in the episode notes to the um, UAE central bank guidance. I think it's well worth everybody looking at. Um, Brett, in terms of takeaway, other takeaways for compliance officers, where are we at? Sure. Well, I would say primarily it's important to keep in mind uh, that OFAC at this point um, expects uh, sophisticated global uh, firms to have sophisticated risk-based compliance programs in place for sanctions. Um, That's definitely a number one takeaway. And it's clear that it also expects complete transparency Uh, when it comes to uh, ransomware attacks and uh, payments. Uh, But perhaps, uh, you know, more broadly, I would just say at this point, be aware. Um, There are steps that firms can take to to address sanctions risk even before sanctions are issued. Um, Be aware of of negative news reports. Keep a close eye on those um, because they can... uh, uh, 
you know, sort of provide a, a roadmap as to where things might be headed. And when you're dealing with complex situations, uh, such as Afghanistan or ransomware or uh, a, a number of issues, uh, you really just you need to be be aware of what's happening. Um, you know, with regard to Afghanistan, perhaps keep a very close eye on any news coming out of uh, the UN Security Council, uh, any reports on discussions that are taking place there or any kind of actions that are taken. Um, just, you know, keep up with these things uh, proactively and uh, don't let them get ahead of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Helen, takeaways? So as Brett said, it's definitely very important to keep up with um, developments, not just regulatory developments, but also any enforcement news. China has been building its own counter sanctions regulatory regime, complete with a framework and also interpretive guidance. So that is definitely an area to keep an eye on because things are changing so quickly in that space. For especially for multinationals that have to comply with both uh, U.S. sanctions and also Chinese laws, it will be likely quite quite challenging to uh, manage full compliance with two regulatory regimes where there's potentially areas where the laws conflict and the requirements conflict. Companies should probably think about reviewing their operations and their contracts in order to identify any areas where these types of conflicts could occur or could increase their exposure to the risk of enforcement action and start thinking about contingency plans. Brilliant. Thank you so much. So thank you very much, Helen. And thank you very much, Brett. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. Sanctions is definitely a challenging topic at the moment, and we hope you found this both interesting and useful. Now, I'll include links to quite a few articles which go into a bit more detail on the issues we discussed in the episode notes. I'll also include a link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. As ever, last but not least, we'd very much appreciate it if you'd take the time to review the podcast and in particular, let us know any suggestions you have for topics to be discussed in future episodes. Thank you for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.